get started with the show, we want to draw listeners' attention to our Patreon page. If you've been enjoying the show and taking any value from it whatsoever, please consider supporting us there. If you uh, sign up for our crowdfunding platform on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, notably a collection of successful magazine pitches from Rachel, myself and other co-hosts and friends of the show. And we'd also like to give a shout out to uh, one of our most recent patrons, who is Reese Thomas. Rachel, can you tell us a bit about Reese? I can. Reese is a men's advice columnist for Vice UK, but he started freelancing full time back in January. So he's looking to connect with editors and to find some new writing opportunities. Uh, we hope that some of the advice, well, hopefully some of the advice in this episode will be will be useful to you, Reese. And thank you very much for um, supporting the show. Thank you very much, Reese. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with the magazine writer Samant Subramanian. We spoke to Samant about studying journalism as an undergraduate, about transitioning to narrative journalism and about the gruelling realities of freelance journalism. It's a great and really candid episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, Samant, and welcome to Always Take Notes. It's great to have you on the show. Um, to kick us off, could you tell us a little bit about when you realised you wanted to do journalism? Because you studied at, at, um, at university, which is quite unusual for, for guests on, on the show. Yes, uh, I did an undergraduate degree in the US in journalism, and this was... Uh, at a time when I still didn't know what I wanted to do exactly. And so when you apply to American universities, you're expected to put down a major upfront with the understanding that you can always change it if you want to halfway through your degree. And so I put down journalism as a placeholder when I applied uh, to Penn State. And then I went there and I took a couple of classes in it and I realized I quite enjoyed it because it spoke to a lot of interests that I already had, um, reading and writing in the news. And so I decided I would just forge on and see how that, uh, how that would play out. And so that was when I, I mean, I, I guess I decided to be a journalist in the proper sense of the word, maybe halfway through university when I figured I'd stick with my major. And did you also study business logistics? I was just looking at your LinkedIn earlier and it said journalism and business logistics, which, which seemed an esoteric combination. Yeah, I mean, you know, journalism was and maybe still is the kind of career where you always feel like maybe a backup would be useful, maybe two, sometimes three. And so I had a minor in business logistics, um, which I did at university. At some point, uh, a couple of years after I started being a journalist, I contemplated giving it all up and doing an MBA. Um uh, my master's was in international affairs, which again was the kind of wide open field that might allow you to come back into journalism, but might also allow you entry into the World Bank, for example. And so it always felt um, it hasn't, you know, it's not until the last few years that I've uh, felt confident enough about uh, the career itself. I mean, it always felt as if it was going to be a precarious position and that eventually I'm going to have to go back and do something else for a living. <laughs> well, I'm glad that that's, the policy hasn't beckoned you just yet. Um, when you were studying journalism, you know, what was the sort of structure of that course? It was kind of interesting because I um, went in there thinking, surely uh, writing is not something you're able to teach at a university level. I mean, either you're a critical reader and therefore a diligent sponge of re writing lessons from things that you read, or you're not. Uh, but it turned out that I actually learned a hell of a lot. And so a lot of the thing, a lot of the modules were quite basic. Um, we literally revisited punctuation and grammar in one semester-long course. Um, we talked about structure. We talked about how to read. Uh, we, we did one module, I believe, where we started writing an assignment sort of at the early in the semester and then just revised and revised that again through the course of the next 12 or 13 weeks. And uh, I realized that the value of that came not so much in terms of how it fed one's creativity, but in terms of allowing you to do a lot of things almost on autopilot, which includes, you know, uh, paying attention to structure and outlining and grammar and so on. Uh, so that you don't have to think about those things when you actually have to sit down to write. You can think about the really creative aspects of 
of the writing process, which is uh, putting the words down on paper and telling a story in an interesting way. And just to clarify um, for our listeners as much as anything, so you were doing, this was an undergraduate degree in journalism, because you've had a lot of Four people years. who've done yeah. postgraduate degrees, but how, how did doing it at an undergraduate level differ, do you think, to the, the one-year postgrad masters that lots of people do? The one huge advantage was, you know, I don't know how, I think maybe you needed like 120 credits to graduate, out of which 60 of those had to be in non-journalism courses. Uh, and they could be from practically anywhere in the university. And so you could take, as I did, uh, some business logistics courses, but you could also take, as I did, uh, Greek history, art history. Uh, I skied for a one and a half credit course for the you know, course for a winter semester. Um, so this was all, it was such a broad education. And that was a complete change from uh, what I experienced growing up in school, which is, uh, in India, where I'm from, school education tends to be quite narrow and tends to narrow down further as you grow older. And so it just, it opened up all these uh, doors for me in terms of just learning about things. And so I uh, got the kind of broad-based education that I think I'm I'm reaping the benefits of now as, in a way, as a magazine journalist, because I tend to write about things that are quite different from assignment to assignment. And when you did your master's in um, international relations, were you sort of working freelance on the side or was you, did you do that after you, after you left? Um, well, I mean, I was doing sort of, a, I, I did a few pieces here and there for newspapers back home. Um, this is when I was living in New York. Back home uh, was for a couple of papers in India, but it wasn't much. I mean, I was there, uh, you know, the, the master's was quite a busy degree in that sense. Uh, and so I would write a few book reviews and so on, but I wasn't really freelancing. I really only properly began to freelance um, in 2011, and I've been doing it now for about nine years. Could we talk about some of your, your early steps in journalism? Um, is it correct that your, a lot of your early reporting was about cricket? That's right. Um, so uh, late in my university uh, degree, in my journalism degree, I was quite fixated on the idea of becoming, becoming a cricket journalist. And so I got out of university and I did that for two and a half years, I believe, um, before realizing that maybe I wanted to do other, write about other things as well. Was it that it was a bit of a, a slow pace or was it, um, that's not a crap uh, pun. Um, <laughs> was it just, what, what made you think, abandon your dream of being a cricket journalist? Oh, I mean, I... I started sort of, I guess, reading more widely, and I realized that I was interested in writing about other things. And um, cricket uh, is a sport I dearly love. And so also doing it, for, you know, following it for a living uh, tended to erode my love for it in some sense. And so I, uh, and I, I was reading, you know, at the time I was sort of a big film buff. I still am, but I was reading a lot of books on film and I decided maybe I wanted to write about film. So I did a little freelance movie reviewing for a while. Um, I would write about books because I read books a lot. And, you know, gradually uh, my th operating thesis for my career seemed to be that, okay, you have a, a small limited set of tools, which includes sort of the ability to research and then analyze and then write in particular ways. But um, the biggest thing you can do with these the set limited set of tools is to apply it to as many different subjects as possible and so that tends to be uh it's sort of a fairly workmanlike approach to journalism i think but it's something that i still uh pursue now and what were you did stints at mint and then also at the the national and Abu Dhabi. could you tell us about about both what those publications are for people who might not be familiar with them and the kind of work you were doing there sure uh so uh, Mint was a business newspaper that was launched in India in 2007. It was a collaboration between the Wall Street Journal and a, 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 an Indian daily called the Hindustan Times. It was a very exciting product for its time. It was um, it was sort of a tabloid format, uh, not at all stodgy business journalism in the way that we used to think of business journalism, but there were sort of quite cutting edge features, uh, a great weekend supplement, and so I was, uh, or I eventually became sort of the guy who would write a lot of A-heads, as they call them at the Wall Street Journal. This is the story that starts on the front page, but then spills over onto maybe an entire page of the, of the inside. And so this was my way of doing features across a number of subjects. Um, so I would write about, 
I'm just trying to sort of think off the top of my head, you know, um, the manufacture of musical instruments. I would write about uh, the valuation of art, um, you know, things like that. And uh, so it allowed me this uh, entree into a number of different beats without necessarily being pinned down to any of them. And then I quit that in 2000, late 2010, and I started doing this uh, job at the National, which was working as the India correspondent for the National. Uh, but what that also meant was, due to the contract that I had with them, I was free to pursue as much freelancing as I wanted on the side. I was writing a book. And so it was really sort of a way to keep these three aspects of my life in play, you know, a job and then magazine pieces and then the book itself. And in terms of, I mean, you've mentioned that your um, your interests are, are very wide ranging. In terms of how you find ideas, is there a particular sort of method you use? Do you devote time in your week to looking for things or is it just sort of stumbling across, um, across things that interest you? Well, a lot of it involves... Uh, reading relatively brief things that appear daily uh, in newspapers and magazines and on the internet and kind of wondering at the larger, bigger story behind them um, or trying to think of larger themes out there in the world that might be addressed in interesting ways. Um, very often, I mean, now it's gotten to the point where, you know, maybe 40% of the pieces that I do are ideas that are given to me by my various editors, and then sixty percent are self-generated, and so uh, it. So so that tends to vary, but I mean, quite often it does. I mean, this is really the uh, the crux of it is that you read small, interesting things, whether it's in newsletters or in Reddit forums, or um, you know, on news websites, and you sense there may be something bigger there. Uh, so it's sort of a, an intuitive skill that you try to hone, I guess. And it doesn't often work out. Uh, very often I'll do sort of a lot of basic research on a story and then realize it's going nowhere. But uh, but it pays off often enough that you um, that you can make a living out of it. And then, of course, there's a lot of, you know, particularly this, uh, this year in 2020, there's been a lot of pieces that are just out there for the taking. You know, early in the pandemic, for instance, when people were still in the early stages of a lockdown around the world, um, you knew that it was uh, a good idea to get ahead in doing a piece about vaccines, for example, because eventually a time would come when everybody's talking about vaccines, so it's best to do it as, as early as possible. So my vac I did a big vaccine piece for The Guardian in April. Um, so so uh, quite often ideas are, suggest themselves to you quite forcefully in that way. And I saw that you'd written for Caravan. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your your work for them and then also the role that Caravan played, perhaps people who aren't familiar with it. My understanding it was a kind of Indian version of the New Yorker, as it were, publishing big narrative pieces. What was what was that like? Right. I mean, um, the Caravan is an excellent magazine uh, based in Delhi. And um, I, started, I, I did my first freelance piece for them in 2011. And it is, as you say... Uh, or models itself on being a, a homegrown version of the New Yorker. It, it it has long essays, three big reported pieces in every issue, uh, and it was the first magazine of its kind in the country uh, to be able to devote five or six or even ten. I think the longest piece I did for them was sixteen thousand words, uh, as as many as sixteen thousand words to a single piece. Uh, it had never been done before, and. Um, the editors were really strong on narrative journalism. Uh, one of them had been at Columbia with me. Another one was somebody who came over, in fact, from the National, uh, an American named Jonathan Shannon, who's now at The Guardian. Uh, Jonathan came to Caravan and helped sort of um, construct its narrative reporting uh, base from scratch. Uh, and uh, and so it was a really exciting time to be doing that. Uh to be at sort of the forefront of this kind of journalism that had never been done in in India before. And uh, it was really how I found my footing. I mean, I knew I wanted to do that kind of work, but, you know, uh, I didn't know how to do it. Uh, it wasn't just a question of writing um, 5,000 words, uh, but doing basically five 1,000 word stories. You know, it's not just like stitching it all together. There's a certain rigor and structure and ideation that has to be instilled in these big pieces and doing it for Caravan first, I think helped me quite a bit. 
uh, helped me to learn a lot of those skills. And how, I guess you'd learned a, a bit of sort of structuring and weaving multiple strands from your book, um, Following Fish, which was published in India in 2010 and then uh, in the UK in 2012. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the research process for that and also how you came to sort of structure it and write it? Um, it, it has a very unsexy origin story, which is basically that a publisher <laughs> um, back home had read some of my travel pieces in a magazine and came to me to ask if I would be interested in doing a travel book. And so I said yes. And then we came up with this idea. Uh, and because I was working at Mint at the time, my idea was always that each chapter would be a standalone piece of narrative journalism uh, and that they would all be connected by the theme of travel around the coast but would individually sort of stand alone by themselves uh, as essays. And so I would go out and do a couple of weeks of reporting for each essay and then come back and write on my own time. Uh, and that helped as well. I mean, I was doing that in a sense blind. I'd never, obviously I'd never written a book before. I'd never done that kind of journalism before. I only knew that I wanted to do it. And it's a very strange thing to operate in that kind of mode, because what you're constantly doing is referring to touchstones of great writing that you really admire and that you kind of refer to time and time again, um, to learn things like structure and tone and voice. Uh, and so that book came out in 2010, and really it was sort of, in a sense, kind of minimally edited with, you know, we didn't really do much with it between first draft and final draft. Uh, and so it has a lot of flaws. Uh, more, all of them of my own creation, but uh, it was sort of a way to exercise those muscles for the first time and build them up in whatever rudimentary way before I got into caravan journalism, which was really sort of the big leagues as far as India was concerned. And what was your decision about going freelance? How did that come about? How did you decide that you, you wanted to work in that way? Well, I knew I really wanted to do magazine pieces and I knew I wanted to work long um, and this is kind of a cheat because I went freelance while at the same time technically also having this gig at the National, which was, uh, you know, I could not have imagined a more ideal way to go freelance, which is that you also have somebody paying you a monthly paycheck. So, you know, and, and uh, the work that I did for the National was frequent, but was not challenging in the way that long form journalism is. And so uh, I could afford to sort of take my time, make some mistakes, um, fail in pitching uh, time and time again because I was still making making rent. Um, but I but the reason that I wanted to do it was just this: that I knew that I wanted to write um, in the kind of vein that a lot of the magazine journalists I admire did and continue to do. And in terms of making connections with um, editors and approaching new publications. Did you have a system for that or was it um, sort of blind emails? <laughs> um, well, I'd worked at the Caravan and uh, or I'd written for the Caravan and I, a couple of editors there were always encouraging enough to put me in touch with other people. Um, but, you know, so much of this turns on luck. Uh, I had, I think in 2012, in January... Uh, I had the great good fortune of being asked to interview David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, at a panel in a book festival. Uh, we were on two panels, actually. And so in both cases, I was the interviewer. And so I had the chance to spend some time talking to him before and after the events. And uh, he said, I think, in the way that most editors do say, if they're encouraging about this, he said, look, if you have anything you want to pitch, you should write to me. Um, and, uh, so I took him up on his offer and uh, I happened to be in New York later that year. This was at the time, this was a trip I would make every summer to go and meet friends, but also very consciously to meet editors as well. Uh, because I knew that sort of FaceTime was quite important. And so I would go out and meet people. And so I would, I, I met him that summer and I pitched him an idea in person at the New Yorker office. And he said that he would commission it. And, um, so that was, and, and it, it all turned on that one piece of good fortune, because once you've been published in The New Yorker, it's very difficult um, for, it's very, it's might becomes much easier rather for you to pitch other places um, with that behind you. 
So, uh, but, but, this, but this was definitely one part of my, insofar as I had a strategy, one part of it, which is that I would try to meet people as often as possible. I knew cold emails wouldn't work, uh, or I thought they wouldn't. And, um, and I had the, the luxury at the time of being able to go to the US uh, for a couple of weeks every summer where I would do the rounds, which was fantastic. Could you tell us a bit about the execution of that first New Yorker piece? So um, just we'll put it in the show notes, but it's about this anti-corruption politician in, in India. And perhaps a bit about you know, how you went about negotiating access, but then also what was it like reporting on India as a foreign correspondent, as it were? How did you negotiate that? And then when you've done that in that context and elsewhere, what's the response been like after the story's been published from, from Indians? So... Um... Access wasn't difficult because at the time this was a small but rising political party and a, and a well-known but otherwise not quite powerful politician. Um, it was his very first election. Uh, he, had just, he was just making the transition from an anti-corruption activist to a politician. And so I wanted to catch him in that cusp and to explore this idea of whether activism has its limits and whether, as he seemed to think at the time, the only way to change the system was to be inside it as a politician. So I thought that was quite interesting. Um, and that was the premise on which I, bet I pitched the, the piece. Uh, so access wasn't, wasn't hard. Uh, I, I had enormous problems with writing and structuring the story, I remember. I, I did an entire draft, and it, this was all very harrowing, I have to point out, because for that first piece, uh, Remnick himself was my editor. I cannot tell you what that's like. Um, knowing that if you fail or if he wants to kill the piece, you will probably never write for the magazine again. Um, so I had my heart in my mouth every time he sent me an email uh, about the piece. And so the first time I sent him a draft, he said, this doesn't work. You know, um, you've sort of, uh, you, you need to start with a guy, you know, the traditional sort of New Yorker structure, which is to start with a man or a woman at a particular place on a particular day, you know, just stick with the, just stick with the template for now. It's your first story. And so I did that. And, and that's how, that's what the final version of the piece looks like. Um, but I, the thing that I had a lot of problem with, which I'm articulating much better now than I was then, is to sort of move past Kejriwal, the politician, to these deeper layers of um, these ideas about activism versus politics, the limitations of one, the dangers of the other, um, and this man who is making his transition from one to the other. And so I, I needed, I, I had to get coached extensively by David as well as by another editor who I worked with in bringing those ideas to light. And that was, uh, it, it was a huge, intensely learning experience, which, I, which I'll sort of never forget. And then once the piece came out, of course, I mean, again, he'd been covered once before in that kind of, at that kind of length, again, by Caravan. Um, but I feel like, you know, it, it's, it, it is true that um, when you're a foreign correspondent in your own country, um, your reporting and your writing can very often seem simplistic to the people living in that country or basic. But I would argue that there is also another thing that it allows you to, which is to set these stories in the broadest possible context in a way that maybe homegrown publications cannot do. And that context sometimes has value. And to sort of frame Kejriwal's campaign in sort of the, in the, in, on the broadest canvas of Indian political corruption uh, had a certain merit to it because it really sort of, it gave you both the history and the context of, of all of it in a way that maybe a smaller, more narrow piece would not be able to do. And would you say sort of writing about India and Sri Lanka has become a specialism for you? Because obviously the Sri Lankan civil war was the subject of, of your next book, um, published in 2014. Yeah, I mean, so I think, again, this is, uh, this is a consequence of sort of uh, how magazine journalism works, I guess, which is that if you, if you come from a country and or tend to live in a particular region, people turn to you for those, initially, at least early in your career, people turn to you for stories from and about that region. And so you become something of a specialist, which is, which many people like. Um, and, and, and many people sort of groom themselves to be that. 
uh, I was always so eager to break free of that kind of bracketing. And just as I wanted to do it in the subjects that I covered, I wanted to similarly do it in uh, the ge sort of the geographical range of my reporting um, without wandering too far into the realm of parachute journalism where I would just go from place to place and not have any understanding of local context. And um, so I was, so I was, I was eternally sort of, and so I guess, you know, even with my books, I mean, the first book was about and from India. Uh, the second book was not from India, although it was from the region. Um, my third book, which has just come out this year, uh, is only tangentially about South Asia at all, or only about South Asia towards the very end of the book. And um, is really about quite uh, universal ideas uh, on the intersections of science and politics. And so uh, that's been, a, I think that's been quite a conscious progression, at least on my part. Although, you know, you can only plan these things with an enormous amount of luck and hope to succeed. You sent over also your fascinating New York Times magazine piece on the, the backstory of the suicide bomber. What was your process of breaking into the New York Times magazine like compared to the New Yorker? Was it similar or different? And then tell us a bit about the, the execution of that story. Execution, sorry, is probably the, the wrong word. Um, but, you know, how you were able to do the reporting for that. That came out, the first New York Times magazine story that I did came about in a very different way, which was that by the time I think my second book was close to completion, uh, another writer, Pankaj Mishra, introduced me to his editor of the New York Times magazine and said that I should meet her when I'm in New York next. And so I met her and um, pitched her my first piece uh, a few months later, which came out years ago now. And so I've been writing for her ever since. And this piece came out the same way. Uh, it's, and so when the attacks happened on Easter Sunday, 2019, uh, I happened to be living in New York at the time on a year-long fellowship and had lunch with this editor. And she said, "Is there, because she knew that I'd written this book, is there something you can do about the attacks? And so I went back and thought about what angles intrigued me the most. And I was particularly fascinated by the story of these two brothers who came from enormous wealth and privilege, who had never ostensibly or overtly been radical in uh, their religious views in any way, but had clearly apparently turned enough over the last few years to uh, participate in these attacks. And so uh, that was the pitch that I sent her and and to which she agreed. And fortunately, because I'd spent a year in Sri Lanka earlier living there reporting on the book, I still had a number of people who I knew, and I was able to use those contacts to um, talk to people uh, about the attack. Uh, but again, enormous luck. I mean, play, luck plays such a huge role. There was one uh, story that's worth telling, which is that I really wanted to get in touch with uh, one of the other members of that family. So these were two brothers who had killed themselves, but they had a number of other brothers, and I wanted to get in touch with the eldest one. And so I tried uh, knocking on his door uh, and, you know, somebody told me through the gate that he wasn't willing to talk to anyone. And then I tried emailing him because I'd gotten his email and that didn't work. Then I tried talking uh, to one of his friends who agreed to broker an introduction, but that didn't work. And I was at my wits end. And then um, this young journalist who I was working with on the story in Sri Lanka suggested that I just write an old fashioned letter uh, and just slip it under the door of the house. And so I did that. I wrote by hand this huge letter on hotel uh, stationery, uh, introducing myself and talking about the work that I'd done and the fact that I'd lived there before and I wasn't sort of a newcomer to the country and explaining that um, he could talk on background if he wished and so on and uh, slipped it under his door. And then three days before I was scheduled to leave the country, he called me and asked me to come over. Um, so really, I mean, these, however, however uh, well-rooted you think your networks are uh, and however well-established you think your contacts are, there's still so much that turns on just like last-minute desperation and luck. Um, and this was, this was one of those instances. Was was tone what, something that you were worried about or thinking about when you were writing that piece? I mean, there's a school of thought on the internet, at least, that um, 
pieces about people who have committed committed acts of violence in some way might give people ideas. Was that something you were thinking about, or did you just did you trust yourself to you know get the tone right and not you know and, and you know not run that risk at all? No, absolutely. I mean, it was something that was on my mind throughout. Um, I think one draft of the piece contained at least two ex- two more paragraphs on sort of the uh, the merits of writing about people who've committed these acts of violence and the ethical implications of focusing on them to the extent that you devote 8,000 words to their story. Uh, I, we cut those two paragraphs eventually just because there was, in this particular case, so little known about... Even when I went there late in, 20, in mid-2019, uh, there was still so much that was just coming out that it seemed almost like a concurrent act of reportage. Um, and so it was. it didn't seem... Even when the piece came out a year later, it didn't seem as if it was being done purely to leverage sort of our voyeuristic fascination with people who do this stuff. Uh, it, it, a lot of the material in the piece was fresh and it was sort of detailing the ways in which these networks of violence were set up and how they pulled people into them. Um, and that was, I, th- I think that has... A certain value uh, uh, for everyone, but then of course the tone is that a tone is the other thing, which is that you never you 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 never want to, in any way, kind of um, sympathize with them, but you have to at the same time write about them without um, overt condemnation uh, leaking out of every sentence. You have to be able to describe their lives in quite a dispassionate way for most of the piece at least. And so um, it, it wasn't the first time I'd done it because I'd done it before in my book on the Sri Lankan civil war. I'd done it in coverage of the Mumbai terrorist attacks in 2008. Um, but but it's a fresh challenge every time. I'd like to ask some really kind of geeky and intricate questions about your, your reporting and editing techniques, if that's okay. So when you're reporting, what is this? And this is probably of limited interest to anyone but who doesn't do this stuff, but of great interest to anyone who does. Do you use, in terms of techniques of note-taking, are you using notebooks or electronic stuff? Are you using um, automated transcription and things like that? And then secondly, when you're working a piece through, do you file... <laughs> Rachel is rubbing her eyes here. Um, do do you, do you aim with an editor to file an initial relatively clean draft or do you file a, a rougher plan or, or a, you know, what is your, your process with, with an editor, with a, with a big magazine piece? Let's, let's really get into the weeds here. Well, I mean, the show is called Always Take Notes. I feel like we'd be disappointing our <laughs> listeners if we don't get into the geeky stuff. Um, I, in, today, uh, this has changed over the years, obviously, but today I use uh, a combination of electronic recording and note and notebooks. Uh, so the recording is usually f- only for conversations that I feel will go over an hour, in which case, and, and, and for important conversations in which I know that I want to get um, every last word down, not just the important sentences in the quotes. Uh, and then I come back and I transcribe them myself, which takes hours and is a pain in the ass, but I've just never been able to trust uh, transcription services enough. Uh, but I also find if you transcribe yourself, you are in a way kind of revisiting the interview in a way that um, roots the material into your head better. So when you sit down to write, you know you have a much better sense of what you have. Uh, the notebook is for visual details or things that I'm observing or thinking, um, questions that strike me while I'm interviewing that I have to ask him. Um, or her. Uh, and also, I mean, if they say things that are particularly interesting in that moment, I will sort of write it down um, just so I have it in my notes. Um, and those I type up typically at the end of every reporting day. So if I'm out for an entire day, I come back, um, however tired I am, I just take like half an hour and type my notes out. Uh, I take a lot of photos uh, because I find increasingly that for visual details, what a building looks like, what a person's wearing, that kind of thing. It's just easiest to take a photo and then forget about it. And then you can refer to it much, much later um, and trust the photo because also eventually you'll have to file a lot of this material for fact checking. 
And so it's always useful to have photos because you can then just upload them onto Google Drive and send them to your fact checker and don't have to worry about, you know, confirming what color the sweater was. And um, I, I, there was one more part to your question, which I which I'm forgetting now. With work with with the editor. So your process in terms of what are you, what are you filing initially going through drafts? How clean do you do you file rough and then refine it from then or do you try and be relatively clean from the start? Uh, I, I, I'm so anal about this and I try my best to file a draft that I think will be as close to the final draft as possible. Okay. Um, I'm a really slow writer. Uh, and the reason for that is that I can't move past a particular sentence until I know that it's roughly in the shape that it will appear in print, uh, which is a terribly inefficient way to go about writing. But it's just something that I can't shake. And so the same applies for drafts. I mean, I, I, I find that if I have a draft due on a particular date, uh, I will usually send it in on that date, but I will try my best to make sure that the edits that I get back are as minimal as possible, which is not to say that there, no editor ever sends back a draft with no comments or just like, you know, uh, ready for publication, good job, kind of, you know, inscribed on the top. But... I try my, that is sort of the platonic ideal that I wish to hit. And sure, editors appreciate um, appreciate that, uh, trying to reach that ideal. Um, I was interested. To... It happened once, I have to say. Uh, I did a piece for 1843 magazine a, f- a, f- a couple of months ago about James Anderson, the fast bowler, the English fast bowler. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, f- I remember reading it, yeah. I filed that and I got back uh, two comments from my editor. And it was just like, it was, the, it was the closest I've ever come. And I was so overjoyed. I remember telling my editor that this is sort of, this is what I've been working t- towards all my career. And you've, you've made this happen. I'm, I'm interested, though, to kind of push on this a little bit, because I, my experience from having had, you know, similar to what you outlined with, with that New York piece of, you know, early in your career, you file something at magazine scale, you're asked to a total rewrite. My feeling is that if you've, if you've the, the effort of getting something, you know, there's a certain amount of like final stuff that needs to be done in terms of putting polish on, checking names, quotes. Like, I don't feel it's worth doing that until the structural thing is, is rarefied. So what, what I try and do now, and this is again for me an evolution, has been I will, it's almost the complete opposite actually. I'll initially file just a bullet pointed outline and say, look, I think this is structurally what I'm thinking. What do you think? Can we talk on the phone? And then have a conversation at that stage about structure, then produce a sort of long and loose first draft that is not fact-checked, but again, it's trying to work out as you, those things, you know, the structural piece and the layered principles, so between the, the human narrative and the bigger thing, then work out what to get it to, and then push it. But I think rather, rather than the specifics of it, which I think are, you know, person by person, broadly what I'm trying to do is set up oneself or one's editor as a team and as a collaboration moving in a common direction towards a common goal. And that, that I found for me has been very helpful in terms of making those relationships feel collaborative rather than confrontational. But I think clearly if you can like, if you can deliver something that is like ready to press print on, that's amazing. But my, my feeling was like the stuff always had to go through three drafts, almost whatever I tried to do to start off with. And it was better to like lean into that rather than to not. And I, I would, the caveat to that would be, I think that is with a big magazine piece. I think if it's for tomorrow's newspaper or whatever, like clearly you want to get it as, as good and as sharp and as clean yeah. as possible. But just really, again, you know, this is, this is really like inside baseball stuff. But um, Yeah, I mean, my thinking is here that like if I send them a piece where, you know, I feel like the structure has, you know, I've, I've, I've been able to pin down the structure, I've been able to pin down, pin down the tone and voice and so on, then the collaboration can really happen at the level of the ideas in the piece, which in my mind are always sort of the most important thing. And that's where a lot of it begins. Of course, that sometimes means um, tinkering with the structure in some way, but it hasn't re- it has it has almost never meant an entire sort of overhaul of the bones of the piece in the way that it used to, as with my first New Yorker piece, for example, you know. Um, the bones are all largely there. It's just a question of how to drape the flesh on them that uh, tends to change, and that's the subject of the collaborative effort. Um, and, and a part of this is also because I feel, you know, however collaborative this whole thing is, um, in the final analysis, you are the one who knows your material best. Uh, you're the one who's done the reporting. You're the one who kind of has a gut instinct about what the um, the moving parts of the piece are. And so 
you're best positioned in a way, at least in my view, uh, best positioned to pin them down in a way that you think works best. And then you can talk about larger ideas, which are more abstract in any case, and um, that, that underpin the story. I was struck by something you said about um, the sort of details, because you sent over a piece um, that you wrote for Wired in 2017 about the Macedonian sort of fake news generators. Um, and also in your book about um, Haldane, you talk about a pebble that he sort of carried around that he picked up in Israel. How soon into your process do you pick up on these details? I mean, is it sometimes presumably you find something and you think that's going to be a brilliant sort of intro? You know, is some of it, does it come much later? Is it right at the end? Do you look back over your material and see something in a, in a photograph or is it sort of a mix of both? It's, it, it's usually a mix of both. Although I have to say that when I'm actually reporting, I'm first and foremost always looking for the detail, which is kind of an odd thing to say. Um, but, you know, even when I'm interviewing somebody, I'm constantly sort of looking for uh, the telling detail, either in something they say or in something about them. Uh, when I'm researching in a book again, it's always sort of the, it's always a concrete detail that sticks in my mind. And therefore my logic is that's the thing that will stick in the reader's mind as well. I'm always trying to move, uh, at least in the reporting process, I'm always trying to move as far away from the abstract as possible. Um, and generalities and so on. Discussions of generalities just bore me stiff when I'm doing the reporting. And then when I sit down to write, then it's sort of time to bring abstractions and gen generalities uh, to the piece or to the book. But that comes out of my own mind, in a sense. It's like my thinking and my ideas about the piece. So in a sense, I'm always kind of detail focused right from the get-go um, and I'm always kind of trying to see how many cigarettes this guy is smoking in an hour and so on or or, or the pebble in Haldane's pocket. I, I, I particularly like the um the in the wired piece the, the fact that they wanted Moet champagne specifically to spray in the one of the three clubs in the town <laughs> uh, yeah I thought that was brilliant. Yeah I mean like all of these little things that just um you know, rather than saying that they celebrated their good fortune or whatever, it always helps to sort of contextualize it um, with actual detail like that. I remember David Wolfe of The Guardian once telling me when we were doing a piece, when I was doing a piece with him about detail, he, which I'd, I'd put in a bunch of stuff and I was like, great details, David. He's like, no, no, the detail has to serve a purpose. He was big into that. Like, you know, it can't just be, you know, as you say, like that champagne reference talks about it because it's about money and, and the BMW and that story and things. It's all it's all tied to the sort of motive power of the piece, right, at the same time. But also kind of like an aspirational thing, right, which is also that, you know, in the small town in, in Macedonia, they aspire to party like the global elite. Um, so the cars they buy and the champagne they drink are very much of a particular global vision that they've tapped into clearly in the same way that they're tapping into... Um, you know, American sentiments about elections and, and presidential campaigns uh, while they're setting up all these fake news websites. Uh, so it's all, it's all a part and parcel of that bigger thing. I mean, I found it very funny when I asked this kid about the music that he listens to and he kind of reeled off these like gangster rap, um, you know, bands and musicians. Again, another part. So it's, it's, it's almost as if sort of they have one eye forever focused on what the global or American elite, uh, how they live. And I, you know, so the more champagne feeds into that as well, to a certain extent. Just, just following from Rachel's question as well, can you tell us about Haldane? I thought, I mean, he wasn't someone I was familiar with, but reading, you know, the reviews of your book and so forth, it seemed A, that he had a very weird childhood, and B, that he sort of... <laughs> Uh, crossed a lot of these strands, as you said, you know, I was reading your HuffPost piece about it saying that you know, this is about how you should be a scientist in the world. Tell us a bit about, about him and about how you came to be his biographer. Well, so I came to him uh, in reverse, so to speak. Haldane, uh, who was a British scientist, uh, moved to India in 1957 and lived there for the last seven years of his life, became a citizen and died there. And when I learned about that aspect of his life, I was intensely curious because it that doesn't happen often. Uh, it's usually with scientists, it's usually moving in the other direction from India to the West. And so I wanted to learn a little bit more about him. And frankly, you know, even reading the Wikipedia article about Haldane's life, um, it's difficult to not be fascinated by it. I mean, the science apart, and science is important and interesting, uh, but the rest of his life is just packed with drama and action. I mean, it's not 
a static life by any means. This is a man who wrote his first paper in the trenches in the First World War. And this is a man who uh, was suspected of being a spy for the Soviet Union and was spied on by British agencies, uh, intelligence agencies. This is a guy who would experiment on himself throughout his life, uh, you know, completely uh, ran afoul of the establishment at every possible chance, uh, a real character. And so uh, I was, and then I started to read books about him. And at the time that I started work on this, there was only one other biography of Haldane, uh, which had been written decades ago and which didn't, in my view, do a good enough job of linking his science and his politics. And I thought that was uh, an opportunity begging to be explored. And that's how I became his biographer. And uh, it, I wouldn't have done, I mean, I think the appeal to me for this book, and because this is a, a podcast about geeking out about writing, I think we can talk about this stuff. The appeal was partly in Haldane's character, but partly it was also the challenge uh, to see if I could write a book that read as vividly as sort of reportage, um, but without having access, obviously, to anything that I'm seeing or anything, anybody that I'm interviewing, drawing exclusively on archival and textual sources to create a really sort of a vivid world and a vivid character and um and i was very lucky or maybe i sort of i i stumbled into holden in a way that uh, helped me because holden's archives are huge um and they're all publicly accessible and there's been a lot of writing around the times that he lived in as well which kind of helps you flesh out uh for example what it was like uh in 1915 uh in the trenches in france and so uh and 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 then, of course, these two big themes of science and politics and how Haldane always saw them intersecting and lived according to those intersections, sometimes uh, not always to his advantage, rather. Uh, I thought that was sort of enormously relevant for our for our day when and it has only gotten more relevant since 2016 when I started work on the book. You talk about wanting to make it as vivid as, as reportage, but how did you find the experience of writing a biography versus versus a piece of journalism in some ways quite liberating i mean i i kind of you know i thought initially that the inability to rely on people to interview would be constricting but given the right kind of archival and textual material it can actually be enormously liberating because the wealth of these textual sources is so vast that even to read all of them is to uh, feel like you've lived through some part of that story, however uh, briefly, you know. Whereas with reporting, you interview maybe a dozen people for a piece or two dozen people for a piece, uh, but very often it can still feel as if you haven't qu quite understood it from the inside out. That can happen. I, and maybe this is just a way that conversation... Uh, in some cases, can still be unfulfilling in the way that reading isn't. Uh, and, and maybe it's a way that I process information as well. And so having read so much about these times and about Haldane and his life, uh, I really felt like I came to inhabit the book and the material in a way that I haven't often felt for narrative journalism pieces. And the other aspect of it also, of course, is that narrative journalism very often is about things that are still unfolding in our time. And so it's often, you know, as with the Sri Lankan suicide bombing story, it's often, you know, you're going out there presenting a fairly incomplete version of events, because there's still so much that is being discovered by intelligence agencies in Sri Lanka, by ISIS specialists around the world, that kind of thing. Whereas with a biography of a man who died in 1964, uh, a lot of the there's been so much written and analyzed about that period of time already that you feel you can transcend that and be uh, a little bit more creative, a little bit more idea-driven, um, if that makes sense. Very much so. Uh, it's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it interfaces with people's writing lives. Um, to be as frank or as, as uh, guarded as you will, but in terms of you know your career, how have you made it work financially both when you were starting out and and now and do you do now that you work freelance do you do any other work apart from your magazine work 
Um, well, as I said, I mean, uh, some of my freelancing career has been something of a cheat because I've had this job with the National. Um, I, I stopped that. I quit that in 2017. And so for the last three years, I've been freelancing only. Again, there are caveats. I was on a fellowship for a year to finish the book. There were book advances, um, and that always helps. Um, but largely now, I am only a freelancer. I mean, I do a little teaching on the site, uh, but that's um, it's not much by way of income. It's more just because I think I'd enjoy doing it long term. Uh, so how I make it work is to... Uh, I think I've done a dozen pieces in 2020. I mean, I can't, I haven't counted, but I think... A dozen magazine features? I think so. Um, wow. Some of them have been shorter, some of them been longer, some of them were commissioned last year and then finally published this year. And so I was paid for them this year. But it's it's basically an endless hustle. Uh, it always involves working on a minimum of three pieces at once at the same time in various stages of publication, writing or editing. Um, and, uh, it's, I, I'm going to come right out and say it, it's, it's unsustainable. I, I would, if I had to keep doing this at this pace, I would just burn out, uh, in a couple of years. And so I have to clearly find ways to, uh, balance it out in a way that I don't do this many pieces. This year was also odd, right? Because the pandemic was raging everywhere. And so, uh, in one way you could do pieces a lot quicker because all of, everything was on Zoom. In another way, there was more demand for freelance pieces because everybody was writing about the pandemic and there's only so many writers to go around. And so uh, I remember there was one extremely funny, you know, at some point in the summer, my editor at Bloomberg Business Week wrote to me to say that they were doing a special issue on vaccines and if I had any ideas. At this point, I was already working on three other pieces, but because you're a freelancer, you never turn down the opportunity for a pitch. And so I sent him a couple of ideas thinking that he would say, well, this one works or the other one works. He commissioned both of them for the same issue. So suddenly I was working on five pieces at once. And again, as I- All about vaccines. No, no, no. It was only these two about vaccines. The others were like the Jimmy Anderson piece, for example, and a couple of others. And so I, I, I didn't turn it down, obviously. And I just said yes and went ahead and, you know, and did all five at the same time and uh, have just had the last of those come out literally yesterday in Granta. And so, uh, you know, it's been, it's been a crazy time. This is not something that happens every year where people are writing to you all the time saying, do you have any original ideas about the coronavirus? Um, but, it's, but as I said, to go back to my original point, it's not sustainable. Uh, freelancing is intensely hard and I don't know how people do it long-term I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's frightening to think that you have to hustle this hard and work um, this erratically and, you know, in bursts of such intensity for the rest of your life if you want to be a freelancer. During that period where you had five pieces on the go, you know, you, you said that you're a slow writer, which I'm sure is, um, you know, you being modest, but how, like, what kind of hours were you putting in each day to get that done? My usual work routine is kind of, um, I start work, and this is all the time, not even when I'm writing five pieces at once or like working on five pieces at once. I start work at half past five in the morning and I work till 10 and then I take a break until two or two thirty, And then I work again until six or six thirty. Um, and it, this is complicated further by the fact that if you're doing, um, interviews on zoom and there are people in the U S or people in Asia, you have to wake up at weird hours to do calls and thing and Zoom Zoom conversations, and so uh, so that that contributed to a, a fairly hectic time. And it's at that point, you know, in the summer, this was we're talking between June and September. It was like seven days a week; just it was nonstop. Um, but you with the Guardian, you have a contracted gig, right? So that's a bit. But what what's your expected output for them? That's four pieces a year. Okay. And how did that how did that relationship with them come about? Did you freelance for them before, or was that on the back of other stuff that you've done? Oh, I'd written one piece for them when I was still living in India, but then I'd written a bunch uh, after moving out. Um, the long reads was set up by my former editor, the Caravan, Jonathan Shannon, and so I knew him from before. And I think there was a point at which 
uh, let me think, Sam Knight, who was a contracted writer, then got his job at the New Yorker, so he left the Guardian's long read contract, and at which point they asked if I would um, if I would be their contracted writer, which I to which I said yes because it was a it's a great gig and I love working with them. And uh, Jonathan is now the opinions editor of the Guardian, in addition to being the long reads editor. But David Wolf, uh, who I work with more regularly, is is now a dear friend. And it's so I've been doing that now for three years, I think. Um, I think we're coming towards the end of our time. Um, just one sort of last question after a well-deserved holiday what's your next sort of big project <laughs> oh um i'm working on a couple of pieces now uh one for uh, one for wired magazine about uh the decades-long quest to get machines to understand human language and uh one particular scientist's work on that front which i think is quite interesting and then another piece for the guardian long reads about well, I don't want to say about what, but it's sort of like a, let's say it's a parable for Brexit Britain, um, uh, but with intense sort of uh, local drama. Uh, it involves transnational flows of capital, Chinese billionaires. Uh, it's quite exciting. And uh, so I'm, I'm sort of halfway through that. Um, and that, that, these are the only two things on my plate right now. It's a relatively light time. <laughs> All the very best of luck with them. Yeah, Samantha, thank you for being a, a great guest on Auto Always Take Notes, and, and we wish you all the best with your formidable workload in the future. Thank you so much. Hello, it's us again. Um, that was a great interview, Simon. What did you make of it? I thought it was very good. Um, I did see you not quite roll your eyes, but almost as we, we got into some of the like real geekery of, yeah, do you... Not I've... at all. I mean, as, <laughs> that's the point of the show i think it, uh i think you were a bit harsh there <laughs> well maybe i'm fair but no i thought i thought it was really good um i always just try and like we get these very distinguished people on to sort of try and download their brain and find out what all the, the secret tips and tricks are so i thought that was really good um Another thing just we were discussing off air, I thought it was very candid. You know, he's a very successful guy. He writes some of the biggest publications in the world, but just about quite how grueling his work life is. And, you know, but yeah, what, what hours did he say he was working again? 5.30 to... 5.30 until 6, but took a, you know, he took a break in the middle. But even still, whew, makes my 10 till 6 look very cushy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he's, um, he's doing very good, very good work. And... Yeah, I just thought it was a um, really interesting episode. I particularly enjoyed the the Wired piece that he sent over, which we'll we'll put in the show notes with um, those lads in in Macedonia sure. and their their crazy club lifestyles. Um, yeah, but I think very very good to talk to him, and I hope he I hope he gets some sleep. Yeah, I hope he takes a break at some point, but sounds like not anytime soon. <laughs> um, yeah, I would um, all the pieces we discussed, I, I thought were brilliant, so we'll definitely put those in the show notes. Um, and yeah. Uh, I think he was a, a trove of wisdom, really. Thank you again, Samantha, for having us on. Anyway, what have you what have you been up to? Well, I know what you've been up to, Rachel. You've been helming <laughs> uh, you've been helming the Economist's Booker Prize coverage today. Yes. Well, we are, so we're recording this a little bit ahead of uh, schedule. So this week, I and a colleague, Ethan, have divided the shortlist among us and uh, yeah, read them all. I think if we'd been more organised, it would have been less time pressured, but. As it went, I was doing... You, you, re- you read them all. Wow. Okay, yeah. wow. Okay. Um, which, you know, if I'd had speed reading skills at university, that would have been much more helpful, but I appear to have developed them afterwards. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it's been quite intense, um, but good. I mean, better that I didn't... One of my three books didn't win, so I didn't have to write the piece, but I did have to edit Ethan's. But, yeah, he did a splendid job. And Douglas Stewart um, seems like a really lovely and talented guy so i look forward to reading shaggy bane and let's try and get him on the podcast let's let's definitely try and try and angle him on the podcast yeah i heard him on i heard him on the radio this morning and that was that was very good and what's been going on with your course slash organized watching of tv (laughs) i've been watching the undoing which some listeners may have been watching with hugh grant as a slightly dodgy bloke and nicole kidman written by the same guy that did big little lies and it's got a very very similar feel to that um, I had a lesson on Monday, which was really interesting. We sort of workshopped a pilot episode of something, which was 
that I was learning about the differences between sort of US and UK television writing structures. So the writer's room is a big thing in America. It was a pilot that had been made. Like, or you were... So it, we used the premise of an existing show and then okay. we sort of, in little groups, uh, you know, said this is what an inciting incident could be and this is what a turning point could be and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, I didn't realise quite how different the US and the UK system was. I mean, in the UK, you'll have different writers for a series, but each person will sort of go away and write one and it will come together and sort of there'll be a story editor or a um, script developer sort of overseeing it and making sure it's all continuous and stuff. But in the US, it's much more collaborative. The writers' rooms, you know, everyone thrashes it out together. Um, so it's been really interesting learning about that and I'm kind of looking forward to doing some more reading on it. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been doing. Um, and I also <laughs> was a bit crafty and wrote about I have to file something every week and I wrote about one of the Booker Prize books and how I'd adapt it into a TV series so two that, in one that, 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 is, that is a bit of bit of a busman's holiday which system do you think is better the American or the British one I would say probably the American one and also it part part of the reason they do that is that you have a mix of junior and senior people so that the junior people are sort of trained up um and then you have the showrunner who overlooks everything and and make sure it's of the quality that they want it to be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's been fascinating. How about you? What have you been working on this week? I have been closing this big uh, piece for 1843 about contact tracers in, uh, in Yorkshire. Hopefully by the time this goes live, it will have been published. It got, it got booted back a week by uh, a long gestating piece on Dominic Cummings that suddenly became very urgent to uh, publish <laughs> due, to, due to world events. <laughs> So that's been very good. It's like the sort of final close of that, which is just, it's this weird thing where you're like, you know, you're trying to make sure all the stats are right and suddenly, but actually what's quite pleasing is it was at that stage that um, the, uh, I sort of got a clearer sense of what was working and what wasn't. Suddenly a bunch of things that hadn't been clear fell into place and the editors sort of seemed happy with it. And, and, you know, I think in that situation, we're also just about professional practice of just like, you know, just trying to meet the deadlines on time and, and hitting all of that. And, you know, everyone gets a bit tired and a bit stressed and just, just trying to be, like, kind of professional about it. So that's been good. Um, aided you by... sent us some very professional emails saying that you were working on the piece and that you would get back to us later, if, yeah, that, yeah. if that's any consolation. <laughs> well, I, I do find I'm big into that kind of email, actually, for having read a book called Getting Things Done, which is exactly what it says in the tin. And it claims that you get stressed... Like, if you're in a situation like that where you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed... It's much better just to say, like, I cannot meet this obligation now, but I will come back to it. And then suddenly it's sort of parked. Um, elsewhere, uh, my, my girlfriend got COVID, but she's fine. Um, so I sent her a, uh, a care package, which has now arrived, so I can disclose its contents. It contained a panettone. <laughs> contained, yeah, so she's a doctor, so she's in a hospital. Uh, not in hospital, but she, she works in hospital. Um, so it contained a panettone, um, a, a Portuguese cheese, or a, a Porto cheese, as I refer to it, um, a set of upmarket Italian coffee, um, a copy of Random Family by Adrian Nicole LeBlanc, which she had started but not finished, some um, printed out circuit training exercises for her to do in her room, and um, I like how she's recovering from COVID. And she's not. Like, she's not. She's not. She's not. She's, <laughs> she's not very ill. I mean, she, she has like very minor symptoms, but she has literally been in COVID jail. She said it. So um, yeah, that that arrived, which is good. And then I've been uh, working actually on this new chapter for a book proposal that I'm putting together, and which hopefully I should get away tonight. So yeah, it's been good. Um, it just kind of, I, I sympathise with. Samantha actually on the sort of work thing. I mean, I think what I've been trying to do and it's sort of coming together is, you know, to actually have a number of things in my work portfolio that are like regular gigs. So I have the day a week I do editing and some other things that are coming together. And the idea is basically that you build enough sort of regularity in your freelance life that, that you don't have to be constantly hustling. And I think just for one's mm. general and, that you know, for one's general kind of mental health and state of mind and stuff. And mm. I just think that's an easier way to be because, I you know, if you are in that situation where you've got to say yes to everything, you know, you've got to be... I, I do. I just feel with his thing... He was saying about you have to have a rhythm that's stable because you know you will otherwise just. I felt there's times when I was working my book and stuff that you will just burn yourself out, you know, and that's not mm. not very 100%. sustainable. Um, it has to be sustainable. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And but it's not it's not easy to get there because exactly you know these. I thought interestingly also what he said about as well about the benefits of like going to New York and doing the rounds, which I've done before, but not not for a little while. And it's difficult to do now. And I think you know when you're having, I have a number of like elaborate professional relationships with people I've never met, and that's you know we we we, we you know we've sort of done really complicated projects together. And I've never met them, and I always think that's not a fantastic state of affairs so that was another thing yeah thing that I, I manage quite a, a big roster of freelancers and i've met about five of them in person yeah, yeah, yeah. when they're in london i try and meet them but um yeah it's not always possible and it's quite strange when you sort of especially if they've been on your on your list for a while and you've done a lot of pieces with them to not even know what they look like is, is quite yeah, yeah yeah exactly i think it is just good to to kind of get which is again what I brought up with Samantha about you know about how these relationships are so important and setting them up that you're all on the same team. You know that I think mm-hmm. is the is the is the way. I know a little bit when I was closing this magazine piece. It's like I know that I find at the end of that situation when you're getting in the weeds, it's quite easy to get like slightly obsessional about like this stat. You know, we're mar- is this marginally correct or you know it, we've called it a sheep field. Is it? but there weren't any sheep in the field. So is it a sheep field or a field of sheep? Like, you just think at some point, like, someone has to say, you know, stop. And um, yeah, and that's that's helpful, but I find I find not a straightforward thing to do internally. Anyway, that's probably enough of our... Um, <laughs> <laughs> All those pro- 10 minutes of us pro- rabbiting pro- on professional, about Professional exposition. Um, that, that person who left us a one-star review on iTunes because we talked about ourselves too much is I, be, uh, I thought... Know? pretty vindicated right now <laughs> yeah we're gonna that's the london that's the london clean food kitchen isn't it our, our one-star reviewer just so if anyone oh, i mean to, i don't think we need to out them but you know well, okay um here we go <laughs> there we go I, I thought their problem was that we were interrupting our interviews by talking about ourselves and now we've we've annexed this bit at the end of the show to talk about ourselves which is i think more sustainable yeah probably better you because you can just turn it off at the end <laughs> exactly <laughs> This has been Always Take Notes, hosted by myself, Simon Acom. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer is Katie Lee. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a ideally more than one star review, <laughs> please do. <laughs> Many thanks. Goodbye.